Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 35, the writer says, women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy." They wandered in deserts, in mountains, in dens, in caves of the earth. All these having obtained a good testimony through faith and did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect Apart from us. Remember how the 11th chapter began. And by the way, for those of you who've been following along, we began the 11th chapter of Hebrews in April. It's been April, May, June, July. We've spent a lot of time in this amazing chapter talking about the trials and the triumphs of faith. We've carefully looked at the explanation of faith in verses 1 through 3 and then again in verse 6. Remember that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We looked at the examples of faith in verses 4 and 5 and then in verses 7 through 40. We looked at Abel and Enoch and Noah, Abraham and Sarah. We looked at Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. We looked at the parents of Moses and Moses and Joshua. We looked at more heroes of the faith. We've looked at Samuel. We've looked at the prophets. We looked at what they did. Abel offered an acceptable offering. Enoch left the earth without dying. Noah survived a great flood. Abraham inherited a land. Sarah bore a son through a barren womb. Isaac and Jacob predicted the future. Joseph anticipated the exodus. Moses defied the king of Egypt. He forsook the pleasure of sin and identified with the people of God. We have in brief looked at why they endured. Because they saw a city, an invisible city. It's not seen by these eyes, it's seen by the eye of faith. The place, the future dwelling place where the saints will be together. We saw their suffering for Christ. How Moses believed that The riches of this world were nothing compared to the riches of the next world. We looked forward to a resurrection in verse 35. And now the author tells us what the heroes of faith endured. 
torture in verse 35, ridicule in verse 36, cruel beatings at the end of verse 36, imprisonment in verse 36, stoning in verse 37, being sawn in half in verse 37, death by the sword in verse 37, extreme poverty in verses 37 and 38, knowing why they endured and what they endured, the writer concludes the section with a glimpse of what they received in the past, the earthly and temporal approval of God. That's verse 16. Remember in verse 16 it says, but now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared the city for them. And then again in verse 39, when we come to the end of the chapter, and all these having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. That is, when you go from Abel all the way as they've marched through the text, none of these people saw Jesus. Literally. His birth, his life, his ministry, his death and his resurrection. But they were approved by God. And it's interesting too. I think that approval is something that is hardwired by God in us. You see, the truth is God, according to the Bible, created you. He hardwired you to want to know him and to love him and be approved by him. And I think that what happens is often we are misguided in that approval. And so we look at the approval from the culture or we look for approval for our, from our husband or from our wife or even from our children or, or, or from somewhere else. Paul Tillich famously said, Accept the fact that you are accepted. Paul writes about that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, where he says to them that God in Christ has chosen the believer from before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians it says that we should be holy and that we should be without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In other words, we are accepted in the beloved. That means we're accepted in Jesus. But think about how many people are trying to be accepted apart from Jesus and apart from the gospel and apart from his love. I had the strangest call today on my radio program. It was from an eighth grader. The eighth grader asked the question from Genesis chapter 6. He said he was talking to a friend at school and that he looked at Genesis chapter 6 and he read the portion where God was upset with humanity Because humanity was in rebellion and disobedience. And according to the book of Genesis, God decided that he was going to cleanse the planet Earth. And this person was deeply troubled by that. He said he didn't want to believe in a God who would judge him. Now I want you to think about that for just a moment. 
That from an eighth grader. I want you to think about the complexity and the profundity of that statement because think about it for just a moment as people live in a world and they're wondering what kind of a God is God and they're wondering what kind of a God should I believe in instead of what kind of a God is the God who reveals himself in the Bible? What kind of God is the true God of the Bible? And if a God has the ability to create the heavens and the earth and to create you and that you're an image bearer. He created you in such a way that you could love him and know him and, and that he loves you and that you could be known by him. And, and imagine a creation that says, I don't want to know you and I don't want to be loved by you and I don't want to have friendship and relationship with you. What's interesting about the passage that we're reading as we come to the end of the chapter it's somewhat different from everything that we've read thus far because thus far, remember, we've, we've talked about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. But in the passage that we're looking at, there's no names. And I find that, that that's very interesting. The reason why I find it interesting is because these are ordinary men and women. These aren't necessarily leaders. These aren't people who are noted by the world. These aren't people who are, are going to be on radio and TV or have a book deal. They weren't necessarily looked at, admired, or even respected. They aren't necessarily the movers and the shakers in, in the world, but their lives are being followed closely by God. And I think that that's interesting. Especially if you've come here tonight and you're wondering, well, no one's ever heard of me and no one knows anything about me and, and I wonder if they ever will. And then you discover that in the grand scheme of things, you are being closely monitored. You are being closely followed um, you may not have a lot of friends on your Facebook page and maybe no one's following you on Twitter, but you are being followed by the Holy Spirit. Everything that you say and everything that you do is, is being noted. And what these people had in common, the one distinctive trait that they all have in common from verse 35 to the end of the chapter, they all believe in God. They all believe by in faith that their God is God. They believe the promises of God. They believe that a Messiah is coming. They believed in God and their faith remained strong as they believed in God. And I'm wondering if that could be said of you. That in spite of pain, persecution, suffering, Difficulty, setback. Remember the context in which you're reading this passage. These are Jewish believers who have come under great persecution and great suffering. And they're wondering whether or not it's worth it to continue to be a follower of Jesus. One Bible teacher writes, quote, 
they endured in faith no matter what attacked them. They never accepted defeat. Therefore, they never were defeated. They never denied God. Therefore, they were never denied by God. They never lost hope. Therefore, they were never left hopeless. They endured in faith no matter the circumstance, the difficulty, the threat, the injury, the pain, the torture, the form of execution and death. They endured endured, they held fast in faith. They held fast in their profession of God. And so in verse 35, look what it says. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. We know in the Bible the story of the widow of Zarephath. Many of you are familiar with it from 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 22. You know the story, how there was a gigantic famine, how it hadn't rained for three years, that there was a financial collapse, that there was an economic collapse, that there was food shortages, and people were dying. And Elijah makes his his way to this particular area called Zarephath. And you know the story of how her son died and of how Elijah placed himself on the top of that dead boy and he cried out to God and God brought him back to life. What's interesting again is there was no resurrection from the dead. That was noted throughout the scriptures. That wasn't the rule. It was the exception. Others were tortured. The woman of Shunem in in 2 Kings chapter 4. The word tortured, by the way, when it says women received their dead, raised to life. Others were tortured. The word itself seems to describe the method of the torture. Um, They were beaten to death while they were strapped to some sort of rack, which has caused some Bible scholars and Bible teachers to think that the reference may have been to a period of time during the time of the Maccabees. If that's the case, if it's the case of the Maccabean rulers, then that story is told in 2 Maccabees It's the story of a a woman in chapter 6 and 7. She's the mother to seven sons who become martyrs. And Antiochus Epiphanes, who uh, is a type and a picture of the Antichrist, will come in and he'll ban circumcision and he'll ban certain Jewish rituals. And this woman will stand in opposition to the ban and... In her pregnancy, she'll give birth to her son and the son will be circumcised and Antiochus will have the baby taken from her and he will kill the baby and wrap the dead baby around her body and then he will kill all of the seven sons as they watch their brother being slaughtered one after the other after the other. And by the way, that's what sparks the Maccabean revolt, the Jewish overthrow of the Greek overlords. The Greeks would use different forms of torture, fire. They would stretch people on a a wheel to break their joints. And when they had them stretched on the wheel, then what they would do is they would pound on their stomach like a drum until their internal organs would liquefy. Liquefy. 
And he says others were tortured not accepting deliverance, but that they might obtain a better resurrection. The idea being, it's one thing to be delivered from what seems like certain death, and it's another thing to come back from the dead, but some refused to be delivered and would suffer because they knew that it would be better to suffer for a moment and be in heaven forever than to be a traitor to God. You know, why are some delivered and others remain to suffer? And I think that the answer in part is sometimes it pleases God to shelter some from suffering. And sometimes it pleases God to lead other saints through suffering. This doesn't mean that he delivers some of his people and deserts other people. You see, people don't necessarily look at the things the way that a that, that we look at it from a biblical perspective. In Psalm chapter 37, excuse me, 34, verses 7 through 9, it says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Jehovah delivers them out of all of them. The deliverance may not always take the form that you would like. In the book of Acts, James is beheaded and Peter is set free in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. And so when you look at the, the book of Acts and you read the story of James and you notice that he dies and then you know that Peter is released and then you ask the question, why are some released and why do some die? It prompts the question, why do the righteous suffer? Why did Christ suffer? Why does God permit it? Surely he could prevent it. Is it because he doesn't love his people? Is it because God's not faithful? How then do you explain the passage of scripture that says, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them to the end. Paul gives us a clue to the answer in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Some clearly have mistranslated that and have difficulty with that because they don't understand what they're reading. They look at it and they say, well, can this mean that Christ didn't suffer enough? Or does it mean that God permits suffering for a season because, well, there just needs to be a little bit more suffering? Paul says, no, that's not the point. Everybody knows that when a, a woman gives birth to a child, there's some pain involved. And if you watch a child being born, most ladies would go, I don't think I ever want to do that, ever. But somehow, someway, we live in a world where people undergo pain in order to give birth to children. And the point that Paul is making isn't that Jesus didn't suffer enough, but rather that Jesus suffered and died so that we could be born again. And so what Paul is basically saying is, I'm willing to suffer in order to make sure that the gospel is preached and the story of hope is given and that the love of God is made known so that people will have a right relationship with God and they'll come into the world. And guess what? That means that just like in a physical birth there's pain involved 
that sometimes in a spiritual birth, there's pain involved. Where you labor over your unbelieving husband, your unbelieving wife, your unbelieving children, your unbelieving grandchildren, your unbelieving friends, your unbelieving world, and you pray and you pray and you pray and you witness and you, and you pray and you witness. And sometimes there's suffering because people don't understand your prayers and, and they don't understand your deep desire and your, your deep desire for them to be saved. The body grows when people are born again, when a person believes in Jesus and when they receive Christ. And Paul says, I'm willing to accept my portion of the, the, the suffering. It's, it's his way of saying, we must fill up that which is left behind in the afflictions of Christ. In what way? Why can't the suffering of Jesus be enough to ensure that believers will never, ever have to suffer? Because there's nothing lacking in Jesus and there's nothing lacking in the atonement. But what lacks is the necessary grief and the necessary sacrifice to bring Jesus to a broken world. And sometimes that might mean suffering for you. You know, it's been over 15 years since Columbine took place, and many of you guys know the story of Cassie Bernal, and you know about the children in the library at Columbine, and you know about how Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold went into the library, and you know how they started asking questions, do you believe in God, do you believe in God, and that they would shoot the people in there, and there was one girl named Val Schnur, who was with Lauren Townsend, And I spoke with her that day and then spoke with her later. And she recounted her story of how one of the killers pointed his gun at her and said, do you believe in God? And she said, yes, I do. And he shot her and the entry wound was in her upper, underneath her armpit, right through the chest and it, it e exited on this other side and she was hurt. And he asked her again, do you believe in God? And she said to me, I knew, I knew that if I said yes, he would shoot me again. And I said, so what did you do? She said, I couldn't betray the Lord. I couldn't betray Jesus. And I said, Yes. And the most amazing thing happened. He pulled the trigger, but it missed, it, it wouldn't click. The, the round wouldn't go off. And she was laying over her friend Lauren Townsend, who was already dead, and she had no idea that her friend was dead. All she could do is whisper in her ear, Lauren.
people faced with terrible suffering have choices to make. And so when you ask the question, why in the world does God permit the murder of James and the release of Peter, why in the world does God permit one person to live and another person to die? The answer seems to be that God's purposes and God's glory are better served by the death of the one and the release of the other. And in the past and in the present, some Christians have been subjected to the most extreme torture and the most cruel punishment. And some have been offered a choice to renounce Jehovah, to renounce the God of Israel, and to be set free. But they refuse to accept deliverance because it's better to die and be raised in glory than to live the life of a traitor here on the planet. Because this is something that you really truly believe that love and loyalty to the Lord really matters. G.H. Morrison writes, quote, so this is also a result of faith, not that it brings deliverance to a man, but that sometimes when deliverance is offered, it gives him a fine courage to refuse it there are seasons when faith shows itself in taking. There are seasons when it is witnessed in refusing. There is a deliverance that faith embraces. There is a deliverance that faith rejects. I like that. There is a deliverance that faith embraces. There's a deliverance that faith rejects. And sometimes we live in a world where you are invited to reject the Bible and reject God and reject Jesus. But the pain and the persecution isn't so great that you might get your head chopped off near the Mediterranean or shot in a school. G.H. Morrison writes, there are hours when the strongest proof of faith is the swift rejection of the larger room, it's his way of saying, it's when you wake up one day and you realize that this world isn't the whole world. It's when you wake up and you realize that there really is a heaven. So what would denying the Lord do? For some, it meant that you would get to live for a few more moments or a few more days or a few more months or a few more years. But even for the person who denies the Lord and lives for a few more days or months or years, I think you all know the truth that death eventually comes to everyone, that it's appointed once for a person to die. And so in verse 36, the writer says, still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. The Old Testament, by the way, reads like a who's who of people who are mocked for their faith. Joseph, 
for his dreams, for his refusal to submit to temptation. Micaiah in 1 Kings chapter 22, Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 2, Hanani in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, Jeremiah in chapter 20. The list goes on and on and on of people who are experiencing every kind of trial, every kind of difficulty, every kind of imprisonment. In verse 37, they're stoned, they're sawn in two, they're tempted, they're slain with the sword. They wander about in sheepskin and goatskins, being destitute and afflicted and tormented. The Lord Jesus Jesus, by the way, reminds the religious leaders that their ancestors murdered the prophets in Matthew chapter 23, verse 34. You'll remember Jesus said, therefore, indeed, I sent you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill, others crucify. Some of them you'll scourge in your synagogues, persecute from city to city that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the righteous blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Jesus says in verse 36 of chapter 23, assuredly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then the Bible says that he cried out, that he wept over the city. And as he wept over the city, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you. You know what's interesting about that? It goes back to the question that I got on my radio program today. I don't want to believe in a God who's willing to kill people who don't agree with him or who judge them. It's a total misunderstanding of the representation of the Bible. Remember, the Bible tells us that if you really want to know how God feels about things, if you really want to know how Jesus feels about things, if you really want access to the heart of God and the mind of God, look at the way Jesus responds. And is it with joy that Jesus faces a city and a group of people who reject him? According to one Jewish tradition, where it says they were stoned, they were stoned, they were sawn in two. That Isaiah, when, when he came to the end of his life, and he was running for his life, and Manasseh, the wicked king, was persecuting him. And Isaiah decides that he is going to hide himself in the hollow of a tree. And he goes into the hollow of the tree. And Manasseh has woodcutters come and saw the tree in half. And as he's sawing the tree in half, he winds up sawing Isaiah in half. And the description reads like homelessness. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. That description, destitute, means 
no resources of their own. The passage is, of course, embarrassing to the people who insist that God's people have to always be healthy and they have to always be wealthy. But it's hard to ignore the passages that remind us that sometimes God's people experienced extreme poverty, profound pain, problematic persecution. And of course, the contrast is with the plenty in this world. You live in this world and the world says, guess what? You don't have to worry about being hurt. You don't have to worry about not having clothes. You don't have to worry about not having resources. You don't have to worry about being afflicted or punished. The, in our world, people want you to have plenty of clothes. They want you to have plenty of resources. They want you to have plenty of pleasure. So they'll say, there's plenty of pleasure, there's plenty of resources, there's enough for everybody. If you'll just simply stop all this nonsense about Jesus. If you'll stop all this nonsense about the Bible being true. If you'll stop all the nonsense about sinners needing a savior. Just stop all that. And we'll give you everything that you need and everything that you want. The invitation is to accept the world's lies and reject God's promises. But the writer of Hebrews, remember that's what he's doing in this passage. That's what he's asking you to do. He's asking you to stand firm and persevere in Christ, rejecting the lies of the world, accepting the promises of God. The world can strip us of everything that this world finds valuable. They can strip us of our clothing and they can take away our home and they can confiscate our property and they can take away our tax exemption and they can force us to close this building and they can make it so that we don't ever get to meet ever again. They can afflict us and they can torture us as as much as possible. They can force us to live in a desert. They can force us to live in wilderness. They can force us to live in dens and caves. But they cannot, I repeat, they cannot take away from you what they never gave to you. They can't take away Jesus from you. They can't take his love from you. They can't take his grace from you. They can't take his forgiveness from you. They can't take the promise of heaven from you because they never gave it to you. And Jesus said, I'll never leave you. Jesus said, I'll never forsake you. Jesus said, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake in Matthew 5.11. Jesus said, you'll be hated of all men for my sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved, Matthew 10.22. Everyone that has forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life life in Matthew chapter 19 verse 29 
Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11, For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Paul was comparing his constant persecution and his constant suffering with that of Jesus in order to demonstrate that the dying and the resurrection of Jesus in the apostle would be something that he would be able to share with others. The writer of Hebrews is asking you to do something that this culture won't ask you to do. He's asking you to stand up for Jesus. To expect Ridicule, pain, persecution, problems. Your wealth is in Jesus and your wealth is amassed as you experience his shame and suffering. And this is why Paul will say in Philippians chapter 1 verse 29, For unto us it is given on behalf of Christ not only to simply believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. And why does he write that? And why does the writer of Hebrews write this? Because the most profound and amazing testimony that took place in that world was when people asked the question, is God real and is Jesus real and can Jesus really change you? Can he really forgive you? Can he really transform you? Can he give you for real peace and real joy and a real expectation of hope? Is it true? Because most of the world doesn't believe that even for a moment. And most Christians don't live their lives as if that's true. And what is the Lord's testimony concerning the people who had everything taken away from them? Look what it says in verse 38. Of whom the world was not, read it for yourself, worthy. Of whom the world was not worthy. Now think about this for just a moment. He says, they wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. The passage says that these saints wandered in the desert. They wandered in the mountains. Why? Because they've been dispossessed of their home. Because their home and their homeland has been taken. Dens and caves are where you go to seek shelter from the harsh and cruel circumstances of a world. These saints are separated from their families. They're pursued like animals. They're expelled from society. They are rejected. They endure heat and cold, distress and hardship all the while inviting the living Lord of the universe into their heart, into their lives, remembering the promises that he's made and that the promises he's going to keep. And what, pray tell, is the world's assessment of these men and women of faith. The world says they're pests, they're irritants, they're ignorant, they're harmful. That's why they've been deprived 
of their homes, their property, their possessions, their livelihood. On my radio program today, I had a guy who was, we were talking about a resource that, that uh, Rose Publishing published about discipleship. And in one of the sections in the chapters in the book, it talks about persecution in the world. And the persecution estimates range from 100 million people to 400 million people. Your Christian brothers and sisters in North Korea are being put to death for the, simply, for the simple reality that they will possess a Bible. In Muslim-dominated countries, they will be dispossessed. Their houses will be taken from them. Their businesses will be confiscated. Their wealth will be taken from them for the simple reason that they identify with Jesus. And the world says they are harmful. God says of whom the world was not worthy. The world says not worthy to live. The spirit of God turns the table and says you've got it all wrong because you're not seeing it from the proper perspective. This world doesn't deserve you. And so that's why you were never intended to remain here forever. God already has a plan for you. God has a plan for you. He's going to make a preparation for you. And so it says, looking forward to God's approval and God's promise in verse 39, it says, and all these... Who are all these? Well, that's Abel, that's Enoch, that's Noah, that's Abraham and Sarah, that's Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. This is all of the people that we've been talking about for all of these months, all these having obtained a good testimony through faith. And what is the testimony? Remember, a testimony is a statement concerning the truth. That's what that word testimony means. When you're called on to testify, you're called on to tell the truth about something. And what these people have been called on to do for the Jewish believers that the writer of Hebrews is talking about is to give testimony concerning the faithfulness of God, the promises of God, God's ability to keep his promises. And so through faith, these having obtained a good testimony through faith, that is, they believe believed God's promises, even though they hadn't necessarily received God's promise. Note, there's a plural promises that are made throughout the thing. And then there's a singular promise. And the singular promise I'm going to suggest to you is the singular promise of the Messiah. It's the singular promise of Jesus. They had faith that God was going to fulfill his promise concerning the land and concerning Jesus. And they didn't live to see it. But they lived their life as if the promise was going to come true. And see, this is why we say when people ask the question, well, how are Old Testament saints saved? They believed by faith that God would keep his promise concerning the Messiah. How are you saved? You believe by faith that God has kept his promise. 
concerning the Messiah. These Old Testament saints didn't live to see the coming of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. Look what it says in verse 40. God having provided something better. If you're one of those people who underline your Bibles, this is one sentence that you should probably underline. God having provided something better. The original language is really interesting in, in verse 40. God having provided. The word provided is the verb problepo. And you might think, I have no idea what that means. It's only used here in the whole Greek New Testament. Pro means to look ahead or to see beforehand. And so the whole word problepo literally means to see in advance, to see beforehand. The word that I like to translate in this context would be anticipate. But it probably means to anticipate with certainty. So the way we might read it is God having anticipated with certainty because he saw in advance something better. What does all of that mean? The Lord foresaw and planned this very thing. Now, this becomes important for you for a number of different reasons. Because I'm going to suggest to you that God saw in advance and planned for every difficulty, every setback, every problem, every pain, every suffering, every persecution. God saw and planned and knew that all of these things were going to happen and he was going to make a provision, these Old Testament saints knew that God would keep his promise. So what was God's plan for the Old Testament saint? The writer of Hebrews suggests that God's plan for the Old Testament saint to one day share with the New Testament saint in the new covenant through the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the writer of Hebrews said God knew that the people in the Old Testament would one day be united with the people in the, in the New Testament in a resurrection from the dead. So he says, and, and God having provided something better for us. And what is that thing that is better for us? For those of you who have been following along in the book of Hebrews, this is one of those key words. Jesus is so much better in chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus is the better person, chapter 7, verse 7. Jesus gives us a better hope, chapter 7, verse 22. The mediator of a better covenant, chapter 7, verse 22. He has better promises in chapter 8, verse 6. Jesus purifies us with a better sacrifice in chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus has given us heaven as a better possession in chapter 10, verse 34. Jesus has given us a better country, described in chapter 11, verse 16, that better 
country being heaven, a better resurrection in verse 35 of chapter 11, better things in verse 35, verse 40, chapter 12, verse 24. Are you starting to get the picture that everything about Jesus is, you've got it. Better in every way. Jesus is a better savior, chapter 3, verse 1. Better security, chapter 8, verse 6. A better sanctuary, chapter 9, verse 1. A better sacrifice, chapter 9, verse 13. The writer of Hebrews gives us the answer to what was wrought in that sacrifice, sought in that sacrifice, taught in that sacrifice. In that sacrifice, everything is better. The Old Testament saints experience real trial and real triumph. The Old Testament saints experience some revelation, they experienced some miracles. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, even though Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses had a remarkable testimony, each and every one of you, each and every one of you has a superior revelation. And the satisfaction of knowing that your Jesus is the Lord and Savior of the universe. And he has spoken to us and he's revealed the Lord to us. So what does it mean? This is what the writer of Hebrews means. They, in the Old Testament, could only capture a shadowy glimpse of the cross. But you see the cross in all of its fullness as it testifies to how horrible your sin is and how wonderful your Savior is. What does it mean that they should not be made perfect apart from us? Again, remember, to be made perfect is an expression which refers to completeness or wholeness. Some have called this the consummation of salvation, the resurrection of the dead. And I'm going to suggest to you that, that according to the book of Daniel in chapter 12, verse 2, and then again in verse 13, it speaks of a time when the dead in Christ will be raised and we who are alive and remain till the coming of Jesus will be caught up together to meet them in the clouds. And the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints are reunited forever as constant companions of Jesus forever. And so the writer says, some were delivered by faith. And then others were given grace and faith and delivered. So what have we learned in this amazing chapter? Well, we've learned that God works through faith, huh? And through faith alone. 
but it's never, ever a faith that remains alone. Exercising faith is the only way to please him and receive his blessing. Faith is a gift from God through the word of God and the spirit of God. And remember what else we've learned. Faith is always tested. You should never forget that one. Real faith. Real faith. Will become tested faith. You know, even in the crazy world in which we live in. When people have ideas, those ideas are usually tested. If a person makes a statement, you try to test that statement. You don't buy a car without testing it out. Real faith is always tested. And sometimes faith seems foolish. But faith will always conquer in the end. Because by faith, Abel offers an acceptable sacrifice. By faith, Enoch pleases God and is taken away, bypassing death. By faith, Noah builds an ark. By faith, Abraham follows God and then believes God's promise of a son and then offers that son as a sacrifice. And by faith, Isaac blesses his son's future. By faith, Joseph speaks prophetically of the exodus of Egypt. By faith, Moses chooses God's people over the Egyptians and keeps the Passover. By faith, Rahab keeps the Israeli spies safe. By faith, Gideon wins one great battle after the other. By faith, Barak and Samson and Jephthah fight and defeat God's enemies. By faith, David is a man after God's own heart. And by faith, Samuel is a prophet and a judge of Israel. All of that's impressive. But by faith, We believe in Jesus. By faith, we trust in Jesus. By faith, we follow Jesus. By faith, we walk into a future secure, knowing that Jesus is already there. And that, my friends, is the end of chapter 11. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we know that without faith it's impossible to please you. A confidence. Knowing that what you say is true. And that everything that you say is true. Faith knowing that you make promises. And that you'll keep those promises. Faith to believe that when you say you'll forgive us, you really will. Faith to say that when you say you'll cleanse us, you really will. Faith to believe that when you say you'll reconcile us, you really will. And so, Lord, it is with faith and confidence that we trust in Jesus and believe in Jesus and love Jesus and obey Jesus. We see Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith.